Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Richmond City Council's budget work session. Uh, Madam, Mr. Clark, if you would proceed with the emergency evacuation announcement, followed by the roll call. Upon activation of the emergency alarm signal, all persons should immediately exit the building. Please use the exits to the left or right front of the council chamber or the east or west stairwell outside the rear doors of the chamber. Do not use elevators or escalators. After exiting the building, proceed to the assembly area located in the parking lot bordered by Clay 8th and 9th Streets. Citizens and employees should assist visually and hearing impaired visiting, uh, visitors with exiting the building. And Madam President, all members of council are in attendance with the exception of Councilor Addison, Councilor Lynch, Councilwoman Trammell, and Vice President Robertson. You do have a quorum. Thank you, Mr. Clark. With that, we will get underway with the presentations uh, delineated on our schedule for today. And the first presentation is um, Mr. Vonk, Director, <clears throat> excuse me, Planning and Development Review, Staffing and Scheduled Studies presentation. Great, thank you very much, uh, Council President Newbell, uh, members of Council. My name is Kevin J. Vonk, and I'm the Director for the Department of Planning and Development Review. Um, I wanted to go through today and just provide a little bit of information um, on what we do in PDR, and I think hopefully be able to answer questions that you may have uh, about some of our activities and our proposals uh, moving into next fiscal year. Uh, I'm going to go through a set of slides. If you have questions um, as we go through the slides, um, please feel free to jump in and we can discuss them. Uh, otherwise, um, at the end, I'll be happy to answer any additional questions that may come up. Um, I just always like to start kind of the context of, of what we do, um, and that is, you know, looking at Richmond 300. Um, this is not my vision. Uh, this is not anybody's vision. Um, this is the community's vision uh, for what we want to see, and that is in 2037, we are a welcoming, inclusive, diverse, innovative, sustainable, and equitable city of thriving neighborhoods, ensuring a high quality of life for all. Um, and this is something that we make sure guides our work in, in what we do in PDR. More specifically, um, you know, our vision, we look at the built environment um, and our role that we play in making it more accessible, productive, resilient, and beautiful. And very specifically, we direct and regulate how land is used within the city. Um, this is how we're organized. Um, we have four major divisions. Uh, we have equitable development, uh, which really serves as our long range planning uh, division. Development review, which includes our, our land use and uh, zoning um, sections uh, to move projects through that review process. Uh, permits and inspections uh, that look at building our actual structures and then property maintenance and code enforcement. Um, the numbers that I have up on the screen uh, reflect the number of active uh, positions we have in each of those divisions right now. Uh, the numbers in red are the vacancies we have in each of those divisions. Um, so you can get a better sense of, of where and how we are staffed uh, throughout our department. Um, and I just want to take you um, on a little ride. Uh, I stepped into this role uh, in January of last year. Um, and, you know, we've all been dealing with uh, challenges in terms of, of budget and, and personnel throughout the department. Um, and so we, we started out with 102 um, active employees. 
um, you know, went through uh, a period where we did um, lose some employees and then had some turnover within the department. Um, I'm happy to say we have done a lot of hiring uh, over the last six months um, and are really closely um, staffed where we were uh, a year ago. And the proposal um, for next year um, includes uh, proposed 122 uh, positions. Um, obviously, our goal is to have no vacancies, um, but we all know um, that there is time for, for turnover. Um, and then we have 13 vacancies right now, um, but I will say we are closing in. Uh, many of those are in the final stages of the recruitment process uh, and hope to um, have those filled very quickly. So I just want to talk a little bit um, about the divisional activities. Um, we are a very broad department. Um, and as you well know, land use touches a lot of different things and, and can be um, directed and regulated in, in a number of, of different ways. Um, so I just wanted to kind of start um, with our property maintenance and code enforcement team. Uh, they're headed up by um, Michelle Coward and uh, they have a team of, of 36 um, with a special division in to handle some special projects um, where it looks at uh, demolition of properties, derelict properties, uh, and hopefully next year we'll be standing up a team to do some proactive uh, code enforcement. Uh, and just looking at, um, we just ended quarter three yesterday, so unfortunately did not have time to get all those numbers uh, together yet. Um, but I, I wanted to reference just some things in our strategic action plan uh, that talk about the primary activities for these different divisions um, and how we're working towards the goals that we've established. Um, in this area, uh, I think I'm, I'm very proud of what we've been able to do. Um, you know, we set out a goal and this is looking at previous um, budgets that, you know, within 15 days we'd be turning around and investigating um, environmental or property maintenance complaints. Um, we started out at five, now we're down to if somebody puts in a request, um, either through call, email, RVA 311, um, we are out there doing that investigation within a day or two. Um, and, and so with that, uh, usually we're able to move forward um, pretty quickly with working on corrective actions. Um, I, I do know that it does take some time uh, to maybe get to compliance or, or resolution, um, but, but I will say that we have been moving out there to um, inspect and, and start the process uh, in very short order. And, and I believe um, with a team looking at doing some more proactive work next year, um, focusing on some of our more frequent offenders, um, also looking at those that may pose uh, health and safety issues in terms of multifamily uh, developments or, or buildings, uh, taller buildings, residential buildings, um, that's where we hope to focus some of those efforts. Um, but that's where we're at in terms of our property maintenance and, and code enforcement team. Looking at permits and inspections, um, we have 50 individuals in, in this division. Uh, they are headed up by our commissioner of buildings, uh, Mr. David Alley. Uh, within that, uh, we have four sections, um, one dealing with our, our permits, uh, second, dealing with our plan review of, of getting plans uh, reviewed, whether it's building, mechanical, electrical, uh, on our inspections section that goes out and uh, makes sure things are compliant and provides those certificates of occupancy. Um, and then we um, made a little bit of a change to establish a, a business services or customer service uh, section um, that's going to be focusing on really making sure we communicate well uh, with our clients. Um, our applicants, um, but also internally, um, you know, within our department and across the city uh, to making sure that um, when somebody has a question about where things are at or when they may be moving forward, making payments, 
um, we've got a, a section that's able to to deal with that. Um, in terms of permits and Ms. inspections, Mr. Vaughn, yes. before you move on, there's a question, Councilwoman sure. Lambert. Yes. Hey, how you doing? Thank you so much for presenting. Um, as a newbie, I'm going to ask some questions. So, sure. Can you just kind of give me an overview within your permits and inspections department? I know the software crash. I know that's in the budget and all that good stuff. Um, but in regards to just the process, has that been revamped as well in terms of as the, I guess, application arises, um, where that is actually going? Because I've heard it's a lot of red tape, certain inspections shouldn't be going to certain people and things to be faster. Can you just give us an update on just where we are with that and how that's affecting your staff? Sure. Um, yes, I think uh, we're talking about a few levels yeah. um, of, of improvement um, and, and I'll get in, you know, some of the reasons of, um, you know, we're not where I want to be at or where we should be at in terms of, of time frames for turning things around. Um, one of the things that we've been doing, and this has been an initiative um, that's been led from the CAO's office, and that is uh, overhauling our development review process mm -hmm. in, in total um, and really making sure that we set up um, a clear path of mm -hmm. how you move from right napkin sketch idea mm -hmm. to like getting your certificate of occupancy. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've been working uh, across the city um, with different departments to to set up really kind of four stages within conceptual preliminary review. Um, if it's found that you need, you know, a zoning change or some type of land use uh, entitlement uh, process to go through that there, um, I'll say, right, timetables are kind of set, right? It's really hard. I mean, between statutory requirements, that's going to take a few months just to get through that. Mm -hmm. um, but then the review process, um, working on, I'll say, how do we get things um, right the first time through? Mm -hmm. And so really looking at, um, you know, scraping away the plan of development process um, and replacing it with a more, um, I'll call it traditional, but comprehensive site plan review process mm -hmm. that looks at um, all of the agencies. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, certain thresholds, right? What types of projects do we need to look at? Mm -hmm. And then making sure all agencies are involved and looking at the same thing and talking to each other about what needs to be done um, so that there's no surprises for mm -hmm. other agencies and there's no surprises for the applicant. Right. Um, and so then with that, then moving on to permits and permits working through our, our permit system or our types of permits to determine, um, you know, which types of permits can be done, you know, over the counter mm -hmm. that really don't need that full review mm -hmm. or just a quick touch mm -hmm. um, to those that, yeah, are going to be more substantial. They're larger projects, more complicated, and they do need that full circulation of review. Um, and so we have a... Um, standard operating procedure in place. Okay. Um, we are working on the implementation of that right now. Um, I will also introduce um, in the audience here, um, Leo Manti. He's a deputy director for development review. Um, he has um, been brought in. No pressure, right? No, um, no pressure. Thanks for being here. Um, but he is going to be working um, in, the, in the development review team, but also really um, collaborating with our permits and inspections division. Um, and collaborating with other departments to really start to tie these things together so we have that process. Okay. So the other layer within that is our, our land management system. Um, and that is, um, yeah, our, our system, uh, we upgraded in November. Mm -hmm. um, it was supposed to uh, resolve a lot of things. Um, 
did resolve a few things. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, it also caused some other issues. Mm -hmm. um, and we had a period in January where we were basically frozen <laughs> for a few days. Yeah. Um, and so we are working on um, what is the next step for our software mm -hmm. and, and the process. Um, and we're also, um, this is another effort, I think, um, you know, led by the CAO and I think are here. Yes, uh, our DCO, um, Sabrina Joy Hogg, um, has been very supportive of making sure we partner um, with finance administration, especially DIT. Um, actually, just this morning, we interviewed candidates to have a project manager basically come in um, and help us, right, map out the process. What do we need to do? What are the requirements? Um, and then, all right, how do we go out to get that new um, request for software? Um, and that is something that I will say and why I say in layers, um, because I don't want to be dependent on a software to solve all our problems. Right. Um, we need to get the process right itself. Right. Um, but the software should be able to come in and help us mm -hmm. and help the customer um, and be very, very clear. Okay. So that is um, the development review process is, is that layer, the technical or the software is on the ground. Um, and then later I'll talk about the zoning uh, code and in terms of those are kind of three layers and on which we're working. Perfect. Thank you so much, Kevin. I appreciate that. That's sure. very helpful. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yes, Count, Councilwoman Jordan. Thank you. Just, just as a follow-up question, since we're having this conversation, I get asked all the time, why don't we just use the software Henrico uses? Is there a reason we have to go out beyond? Thanks. Sure. Um, I, I think, and, and this is... Um, Part of what we're going to explore um, in, in terms of the making sure we're in agreement with well let me back up part of the process that we're involved in right now is to really kind of flesh out um, when it comes to reviewing and approving permits what are we required to do federal law state law or city ordinance um, and what are things that are more i'll call it check the boxes or policy or just always done it that way type of things so we're trying to figure out you know what are the core things that we need to do um, and with that what software will best help us um, I think one of the things that we're going to work with the property or um, the project manager on is looking at some other departments have some software um, in, in DPW and DPU um, that do certain programs they have certain modules that do land development processes is it possible to look at you know expanding those to do some of that work um, and then also, what does, uh, what do our neighboring jurisdictions use? What does Henrico use? And what do Chesterfield use? Um, and how may those configure? Um, but really, um, we'll need to go out and find out what's best for Richmond. Um, I will say that um, in, in talking with planning directors in the neighboring jurisdictions, um, you know, they enjoy their software, but they are also not perfect. Um, and then there are limitations with each of the softwares that they do use. Um, and so that's where I go back to making sure we have our processes right um, so that that software um, can fit into, um, you know, basically how we use it, but also um, in, in some manners, maybe having to make changes to adapt to the software. And, and at the end of the day, um, I think what we're also cognizant of looking at is really being open to there may not be a one size fits all solution, and that is. There may be a, a piece of software that's really great for back of house and managing everything. It really doesn't have the, um, I don't know, I'll say <laughs> friendliness in terms of customer engagement, like it's really hard to use or figure out. 
Um, and there may be some that are great front doors, right? Make, make it easy to use, um, but they don't have great backup helps. And so one of the things um, we are in the process of is to um, get a better front door. Um, and so we are, are working um, to use a product called Camino. Um, and that will basically, um, they will come in, look at our zoning ordinance, look at our building code, um, and put together a guidebook or a decision tree for an applicant. And that is, I go in, I look, here's where I live, I want to do this type of project, I want to put on a deck. Um, can I do it? How big can I do it? Um, and it's going to then walk me through, all right, what kind of permits do I need? And how long is it going to take to do? How much is it going to cost? And then it will drop me off at the front door of like, okay, doing it. And the hope on that is to, uh, a challenge we have right now is we get a lot of permit applications with incomplete data, bad data, and we have to reject them and start over. Um, and that's tough. And that's churn on <laughs> us and it's churn on the customer. So how can we get, um, regardless of what system we use on the back end, how can we get that customer the right information up front? Um, and so that is happening now um, while we still work on, on this back piece. So it's a long way to say we're going to explore what the other um, jurisdictions use. And I think that is something that is going to be taken into account when we're evaluating it because right, we operate in a region and we operate um, with customers who operate in those multiple jurisdictions. Um, and in terms of like staffing, right, we're able to maybe recruit a <laughs> staff to to help us with that. Um, but that that's where we're at. And, um, and it's not just a import because they have, but it, it will be considered in that process. Councilwoman Nye. Um, thank you, Dr. Newbell. And um, thank you, Kevin, for the presentation. I'm sorry we're getting a little off track, but it's nope. really important dialogue and I appreciate the questions my colleagues are asking. Um, and I know you're new to this position and newish to the city, so you've inherited a lot um, and probably a decade plus um, challenge. So based on everything you're saying, is there any sort of timeline? And I understand there's different pieces that you have to look at individually and then kind of weave them all together. So I, I know you can't stand there and tell me, you know, Kristen, it's going to be September 1 when it all makes sense. And I know we probably don't even know what's in front of us. I'm happy to hear that there is, or it sounds like there's a plan um, because this has just been going on for too long and it, it's really keeping money out of our coffers. Yes. Um, my boss, uh, Ms. Sharon Ebert, um, DCAO of, of Planning Economic Development, um, is here. And, you know, she would love to have these things done at the start of the fiscal year, as would I. And I think that is, you know, we're going to keep pushing full steam ahead in terms of um, where these layers are at. What I just talked about, Camino, um, we're going to bring on a project manager next week. Uh, okay. I'm sorry, Camino, I just signed the purchase order for, so we're going to purchase that and get that moving. Um, as far as the Energov replacement, um, that it, we're going to contract with the project manager and bring that person on next week to start that process. And really, um, you know, within the first 30 days, give us an idea of like, okay, how long till we can figure out what we need in terms of the requirements and then moving forward. Um, the development review process, uh, as I mentioned, Mr. Leo Manti is here. Um, he is going to be helping with the implementation piece of that, and we are actively engaged in that right now. Um, and then um, there's one more piece. So I, I will say 
um, you know, by July 1st, I think we'll have um, a much better idea of where we're at. And mm -hmm. my goal is to at least have the development review process. Um, we've been working through a few pilot projects, um, and Matthew Ebinger, one of our principal planners, has been helping shepherd some uh, projects through because now it's moving from that idea on paper to actually doing it. Um, and so as we do that, we just want to make sure if there's any um, you know, hiccups to work out, we'll, we'll be moving through. Um, and I will say, uh, you know, the other departments have been quite supportive of getting that done. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in terms of, yeah, by that July 1st, September 1st deadline, um, our goal is to get the new process in place. Um, the other uh, piece in terms of making some of the code changes, um, those are being drafted right now. So April, um, we have to change our code mm -hmm. um, and really specify to the development community applicants what's needed in terms of an application. Um, so those will be coming forth. Um, in April or May, um, which then once adopted, we can really formally um, implement everything. So I know it's it's a it's a lot, um, mm -hmm. but I feel we have the right team in place, and everyone is not satisfied with how things are now, and, right. and just are moving forward to take those steps to get it done. Okay, um, I appreciate that. So sure. you're talking about July first, 2022. This yes. Year. Okay. Yep. Okay. Two months away. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Newville, is there any way we could maybe get an update on this at like OD in June or something like that? Just kind of a check-in mm -hmm. um, because this is coming up organically during the budget process. Um, but I, I just think it would be good to know where things are. I mean, we all get calls from folks that are trying to get permits through and we don't want to email that stuff to you. <laughs> But, you know, we have to because there is no sometimes there is no other path. Um, if they've reached out to us, it's kind of the last the last step. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it would be good to know if if there's this plan, how it's going so we can then communicate it to our constituents and let them know, you know, there is progress where hopefully you know, I'm sure there will be some bumps, but hopefully nothing will take us off this. Path. Yes. Um, and I will say, I mean, that does not include, um, you know, small changes we've already made, mm -hmm. um, you know, through our, our, our building commissioner in terms of expediting permits, um, you know, for small businesses, for city projects, for mm -hmm. affordable housing, being able to get those through. Um, it's also providing for if there's just interior work, providing mm -hmm. early start that you can get moving before your permit application goes through. If it's just, you know, some simple interior work um, mm -hmm. to allow people to like get to work and write, you know, how hard it is to get resources. Um, and, and we're continuing to look at other things, um, you know, in terms of, of, of virtual inspections, uh, what can be done virtually versus what we need to go in, in person. Um, and so we're just continuing to, to look at other small ways um, as we go along to, to help with that. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just want to say like, anytime I reach out, I feel like you guys are, really responsive and sometimes the queue is just what the queue is yep, um, sure. but I do appreciate that uh, Mr. Bonk just yes. in response uh, follow-up to Councilwoman Nye's um, comment I think it would be good for periodic updates based on progress and I'll ask our interim chief of staff to reach out to you to provide that during an OD meeting as is um, appropriate based on where you are in you know, being able to bring its current with sure. progress relative to the strategies you're sharing this for. Great. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate that. 
Um, and I think this, you know, kind of reflects, um, you know, where we've started um, and our, our goals in terms of turnaround times um, for being, you know, a number of, of days to complete, um, you know, plan reviews and applications. We're not where we need to be. Um, and this is, you know, been some of the reason for wanting to push forward um, with a lot of these changes. Um, I will say our inspections um, have been on target and the zero doesn't mean we don't inspect. The zero basically means we're out there that day. So, um, you know, we're being able to turn around inspections um, in a very timely manner, but we've got a lot of work to do when it comes to, um, you know, working on the permit applications and plan review. Um, I will say without going too much in, um, this is from October of last year, um, and this is, I'll call it the queue. Um, this is the virtual pile of permit applications that are sitting um, in our queue waiting to be processed. Um, and so you can see from, and those are in the gray bars, um, you know, as we went through, we had some time away because we did the EnerGov upgrade and then we had the system crash in uh, January. And so we piled up to, we had a virtual pile of over a thousand applications. Um, but since that time, since we've gotten the system running, we've been able to bring uh, more um, planning specialists who are also known as permit techs on board. Um, we've been able to bring that pile down and every week we are reducing that pile um, as well as the turnaround time. Uh, those in um, blue and red are, are related to residential um, and the black and gray are related to commercial. Um, and so as we have that staff on board and they become more trained and more efficient, um, we're continuing to to work on reducing that backlog um, and reduce those turnaround times. So uh, in the time that we've had uh, those individuals on board, we've been making progress. And this is, again, you know, our hope to continue this progress in, in the weeks and months ahead. Councilman James. Yes, I don't know if this is the appropriate time, but I'll just ask it from a uh, code enforcement standpoint. I know uh, a few cycles back, Madam President, um, Mr. Agilesto and myself, we put in a budget amendment uh, to hire more, two more uh, within code enforcement uh, department. Where are we at on that? Because uh, I know and this, this definitely predated you, uh, definitely did that. Um, but I know that uh, there's some back and forth on training uh, and whether or not the freeze impacted these dollars or not. But I just wanted to to see how that uh, how those dollars were spent because I believe it was either 300 or 500 thousand uh, that we appropriated uh, in that. And so if again, CAO's office can get back to us at any point in time on that. And unless you're familiar with that. Uh, I appreciate that. Sure. Mr. Bonk, if you have that information now, that's fine. If not, that can come back to us. Yeah, I, okay. I, I don't have anything specific as to that. Um, I do know, and um, you know, our budget director, Jason May, is here. Um, I, I will say over the last few months, he and I have had a lot better conversations um, about um, understanding we get money or revenues from building permits, and, and uh, there was state legislation that talked about how that money could be spent. Um, we've been done a better job and gotten a better understanding of um, directing those funds to both property um, maintenance and code enforcement, as well as permits and inspections, um, and, and believe that we have, at least from the code enforcement standpoint, um, 
the positions filled in place to be able to do those things. Um, and I think recommended in next year's budget is the establishment, I think, of four positions um, to establish a proactive code enforcement team um, to really work on special projects, looking at neighborhoods, looking at corridors, looking at some of our larger residential complexes. Um, we do have enabling authority now to look at um, inspection districts. And so to really, um, I, I'll say, be tasked with being a more proactive approach on, on those matters. Councilwoman Jordan. Thank you. So looking at this chart, is this typical for this time period? I'm just curious where we are, like in the larger context of permits coming in. And I, mean, I think it's kind of scary to think that you would get, you know, almost 1,200 permits and only have 50 people in the entire, you know, section. And I'm, I'm guessing not all 50 of those review permits. Like, are you, are you, I guess that's two questions. We're in budget season. Based on what you're seeing, do you have the staff needed to actually even keep up with the volume um, that that we're going to have for the next year? So what this represents is the, the gray bars is basically what's still left in the queue. And um, right when it goes up, basically that means we got in more permits than we got processed. Um, and when it goes down, we processed more permits than we got in. Uh, one of our challenges is we're open 24/7, right? We've we've <laughs> most of our staff is is um, you know working 40 hours a week. Um, we have many who have taken advantage of of overtime um, and some extra hours um, to be able to to help cut down on this. Um, depending on the week, you know we we receive a few hundred permits every week. Um, I think where we're at right now is as you can see, um, we have authorized 10 planning specialists um, to do this work. And, and I think um, that is enough to help us work down on that queue. Um, where we'll probably need to look at this again, I would say maybe is in six months to see where that equilibrium is at. Um, and, and just what is the right number of planning specialists to be able to handle that queue. Right now we need more because this is our bottleneck. And so, you know, using all 10, um, that is where the help is needed because that's where we need to go. Once this gets better balanced and hopefully with technology, once we have less churn, less um, fewer applications that are junk that have to be rejected and, and returned, um, we may look at adjusting that number and perhaps using those individuals to assist with plan review or, or other functions. Um, but right now our bottleneck is the permit intake. And so the, the 10 that we have authorized are helping to get us down on that piece right now, um, along with some, some temp help that we have. So. I think we do have um, the, the right number in place, and this is one of the things we also talk about then is um, the immediate need and then the long-term sustainable need. So I feel comfortable with where we're at that we are making progress on this um, and really trying to work closely with our building commissioner to find out you know, where are the pinch points and, and we feel we're addressing it right now. All right, um, development review. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Leo Manti is, is here. Um, he is our new deputy director for development review, uh, overseeing our, our land use and zoning functions. Um, he'll also be playing a uh, lead role in implementing changes to the development review process, um, both when it comes to the management and, and arrangement, but also um, working on some of the new software implementation. 
Um, in terms of land use administration, um, you know, as we go through, really looking at you know zoning entitlements, changing a zoning, um, special use permits. Um, you know, the the goal is for us to be able to you know turn things around in a few months. And and part of the reason for why it takes this long is for us to you know evaluate a proposal, um, but also you know work with the community on this. This is where we have. Um, Ahead of introduction, you know, neighborhood engagement, engagement with you as, as council members, um, trying to bring a proposal um, that staff supports. And and I will say, there's due process. Um, if an applicant wants to bring something to council um, or to planning commission, they have the right to do that. Um, but it's usually better if we can get to a place where there's uh, a recommendation from staff to support it. Um, so we're we're pretty close to our our goal uh, in terms of uh, within 100 uh, business days being able to. Um, take an application and then move it into the system um, for introduction at city council to then go through the, the planning process. Um, and then also um, part of our team uh, is responsible for a number of boards and commissions. Um, so both, uh, well, Commission of Architectural Review, Urban Design Committee, the Public Art Commission, Board of Zoning Appeals, in addition to, to City Planning Commission, um, and so just some uh, reflection of, of how we are also um, working on those measures. Um, and, and generally, uh, we've been pretty consistent. Um, we did have a, a staff shortage with our Section 106 review, but we do have a full-time employee um, on board now. Um, so hopefully those quarter three numbers will be going back down. Uh, and then again, uh, we also oversee the Public Art Commission um, and then spending those uh, capital improvement dollars and projects throughout the city. Uh, and then zoning, uh, in terms of compliance, um, we've had a little bit of, of turnover in that department, so we're behind on our measures of, of being able to issue uh, zoning compliance letters. Um, as you know, there's a lot of real estate activity, and then sometimes in order to make a financial transaction, you need the lender wants a, a zoning compliance letter, um, or moving forward to change on a use, um, there's uh, a need to um, get a zoning permit to move forward. Um, so we're not quite um, at where our targets are, um, but we have some uh, thoughts about moving forward um, in terms of training additional staff to, to help with that. Um, but in terms of our Board of Zoning Appeals, we're bringing those in a timely manner, um, and we're still working on, um, and this is a software issue, being able to track down our um, zoning complaints in terms of the time it's taking for us to get out there. I will say anecdotally, we've generally been getting out there within uh, four to five days. Um, we just I can't prove that because I can't pull it out of the software right now because it's not configured to, to do that. And then this, um, just talking about um, in this arena, city development activity over the last five years, um, significant increase. And, and one of the things that you see in here, um, these are kind of the land use entitlements, uh, but what's really taken off is our special use permits. And, um, you know, from 41 to 116, and the, the special use permit, um, you know, what we've seen the most growth in is a special use permit to build a structure um, that looks just like every other structure in the neighborhood, but because the zoning code is outdated, um, you know, it needs a special use to fit the setback or the height or um, something of that nature. And so you'll see, and you see on your council dockets, a lot of special uses to build a one-family home or a two-family home um, in a neighborhood where all the homes look just like it. But because it no longer meets the zoning code requirements, it needs that special use permit to, to move forward. 
Um, and so that is why in, in terms of looking at a, a rewrite for, for the zoning code, um, uh, been working again with Mr. Jason May. Um, I think we are able to, uh, through this year, um, secure enough funding to be able to move forward with that rewrite. Um, I think I'll defer to him if you want to talk about any of the, the, the technical pieces of that um, in, in terms of where that will come through in, in, in the budget. Um, but I believe we will have sufficient funds to move forward with that piece. Um, it's not going to solve every problem, but I do believe that it will cut down on a lot of these um, you know, smaller requests um, and really uh, allow us to focus or have special use permits for those big complex projects that really do need that, that full discussion. Um, but I will say uh, I'm very impressed with our team um, that's remained relatively the same amount in size that they've been able to handle this increase um, and really still um, keep in line with our goals for, for moving pieces forward. And then uh, the last piece um, is our Office of Equitable Development. Uh, headed up by our Deputy Director, um, Maritza Makado-Pichin. Um, and this is an office that was created uh, really to, again, focus our long-range planning efforts and the implementation of Richmond 300. Um, you know, we have a, a community vision uh, with a lot of actions and recommendations for how we get things uh, done and moving forward in the city. And, and this is the office um, that is leading that and really coordinating um, both throughout the city and throughout the community um, to move these things forward. Uh, and so uh, part of these goals uh, are to look at you know, small area plans or feasibility studies. Um, we should be able to hit that um, this year. Um, some text amendments that we've been talking about um, right now in the process of uh, short-term rentals, accessory dwelling units, parking requirements. Um, later this month, we'll have some uh, engagement getting back out there, um, zoning, land city initiated rezoning. Um, we've done uh, over this fiscal year, um, Greater Scott's Edition, uh, section of the Pulse Corridor, and not on here is the second section of the Pulse Corridor for the uh, West. Um, and then also really hosting um, community engagement and outreach events. Um, and, and so being involved in the community so that it's not just um, you know, one stop when a plan comes through, but really trying to establish relationships um, with our neighborhood associations and, and civic associations and other, um, you know, groups in the community to, to make sure we have that balance uh, moving forward. So um, with that, I will pause because the, the next section is talking about um, a list that I've talked about before, um, and that is all the Richmond 300 projects. But before we dive into that, I guess I do want to take a pause if there are any questions. Sure. About um, Councilwoman Lambert. Thank you, Madam President. Um, yes, thank you, Mr. Bonk. Very informative presentation. Um, I'm just trying to, I'm just curious as to see where we are um, when it comes to, um, well, not just totally, blanked. I'm sorry, I totally forgot my question. Um, come back to me and I'll have a question for you. But yeah, it's totally. No blanked. problem, Councilwoman Lambert. It's so much information today. It's just, um, I'll come back. Councilwoman Nye. Um, I just wanted to bring up a item that is a specific situation in my district, but if it happens in other districts, I thought it might be worth sharing publicly. And I think we've talked about it. It's the house where the owners started construction without a permit. And then, um, so the house was like half demolished and the building commissioner at the time gave them 
the grace to do the right thing and get the permits. And this went on for like six to 12 months. And in the middle of a neighborhood, we had this half demolished house and um, they, they never pulled the permits. Um, and so we ended up having to demolish it. But the entire process took, uh, I would think probably two years. Um, now I understand wanting to work with people, but to me, this was like such a hazard, first of all, and the resident or the, the developer really, because they don't live in the neighborhood, um, I think knowingly started the process without the permits, um, just my opinion. And, you know, when we shared information and tried to educate them, they did not comply. So how can we keep this from happening again? And I asked this at the at the time it was going on, and I don't feel like I really got a straight answer, but I am I would not want anyone else, you know, in the city to have to experience this. And I think it's just a huge hazard. So sure. Um, I think uh, a few things, um, you know, one, making sure, um, you know, we take complaints or um, direct residents that they feel comfortable reporting unauthorized building activity, um, you know, through RVA 311 or just notifying us. Um, you know, that is something, uh, and there's been many cases where somebody will report something and you know what, it's just interior work or they're moving out and it doesn't lead to anything. Um, but not being afraid and encouraging those to, if they have a question or concern about that, to report it. Because if we don't know about it, um, it's, it's hard for us to investigate. Um, I think we do the same thing amongst our staff, and that is encouraging when we're out on inspections and maybe for a property maintenance issue or something else, and we, you know, look around and see potentially unpermitted activity, we're going to be doing the same thing and, and digging into, um, you know, looking um, at what permits were pulled or, or other things there. In terms of the in enforcement piece, um, I think what we're trying to do is uh, – Obviously, the, this balance of health and safety, at the end of the day, health safety is, is paramount. Um, and so we are willing to work with individuals. And we do understand um, that just based on the construction world right now, sometimes it can take some time to get a contractor or, or to get somebody to, to come in um, and, and, you know, do the work or, or work on the, the permitting process because, right, we're also behind in, in issuing those permits. Um, and but what we've really pushed is, um, you know, trying to make sure that there's documentation that I'll say there truly is a good faith effort to move forward to do it right and do it correctly. Um, and when it's not the case, yeah, we do have to set some hard deadlines sometimes um, because, you know, although an individual may have the uh, right or ability to, to construct a dwelling unit, um, the code does have some provisions for the length of time that it can take um, and extensions. Um, and perhaps uh, an extension or two maybe in order, but in, in certain situations, yeah, there may be times like we need to finish this project or it's going to be coming down. Um, so I think with our um, new commissioner of buildings, we're, we're working on some uh, you know, standard operating procedures to address some of those issues. It's, it's not common, um, but I think the times that it does happen, we, we do want to be consistent in how we approach it um, because it's only a matter of time till we have to deal with it again. So so that is something that you can tweak within your own house, not anything that would have to come before council. Correct. I think there, there's enough in the um, code 
to enable us um, either through building code or property maintenance code to to enforce. Um, it's just making sure we internally are on the same page and in terms of when we I'll say press a little harder. Um, at the end of the day, you know, I've said this a lot. I mean, my goal is not to be punitive, it's to get compliance. Mm -hmm. And we get compliance by getting the house finished or the house going away. Right. Um, and then so what are the, the ways to um, get to that? Um, I think we've got some, I'll say more uh, consistent direction on how we handle some of those things. Okay, thank you. Councilwoman Lambert. Thank you, Madam Chair. I'm so apologize, so much information, um, so much going on. I'm not sure, Mr. Bonk, if you can um, clarify this for me or possibly Haskell. Um, the master plan amendments that we have put in, that paper keeps getting continued. I was told that we as council cannot amend the master plan. Is that correct? Um, just because I'm wondering why this paper hasn't been gone through yet. I know most of us members have put in amendments towards the master plan. Um, I'm just trying to understand where are we with this paper? Is that paper going to move forward? Sure. Um, just some clarification. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Brown. Miss um, Ma'am, the in, in Richmond, the Planning Commission adopts the master plan and the council approves the Planning Commission's work. So the Planning Commission has to make amendments to the master plan. Okay. That's why the resolution is there is to it's for the it's the means by which the council under state law initiates that amendment those amendments to the master plan okay um madam chair at this point with that paper are we um proposing any amendments to the planning commission for that at this moment or um it is my impression that there may be some amendments coming forward by virtue of uh, meetings and conversations with members but i stand corrected there okay I just want to. Yes, Mr. Brown. Um, I, I know that the paper with a long laundry list of amendments is still pending, but I believe recently we just adopted a resolution that targeted one or two amendments. Not mistaken. Uh, yes, I believe um, it was adopted on Monday, um, which was the resolution to um, direct the Planning Commission to amend the master plan to uh, specifically look at um, some of the Housing authority okay. areas, yeah. um, and so that one was a standalone, okay. um, and that was adopted. And so now, within 60 days, that will be presented to the planning commission okay. to take action on. Okay. And so then there's a whole process that the planning commission goes through to to do the amendments. Okay. Um, the paper that uh, Mr. Brown referred to that is the long list of, yeah. of ones, um, and that that has not moved forward to that process yet. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. I so that's where the future discussions would happen and okay. those would come forward as okay. um, they're yeah. addressed with members. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you, Mr. Vaughn. Okay. I think that's a good segue um, to implementing Richmond 300. Uh, and I, I think one of the ways, um, you know, that I've looked at, um, you know, when discussing some of those amendments that have been in um, that, that resolution is, uh, you know, the balance between going through and formally amending the plan to change language in the plan versus looking at how the plan is being implemented and can some of those goals, thoughts, actions um, be done not through amending the plan, but actually through implementation. Um, and that is actual activities, studies, zoning, um, that we can do uh, in, in a different way to, at the end of the day, accomplish the, the same goal. 
Um, so when I spoke, I think it was at organizational development back in November of 21, um, Richmond 300 got adopted in December of 2020. And so in November 21, um, you know, we talked about where we had moved on um, some activities, the changes to the B3 zoning district, the, the first um, chunk of rezoning the Pulse and Allison uh, around the Allison Museum, VCU, uh, VU stations, and Greater Scott's Edition. Um, and since that time, we've adopted the small area plan for the Innovation District, uh, the city center area. Um, we have adopted urban uh, design committee guidelines, uh, another rezoning on far west um, of the Pulse, uh, and then also the equitable and affordable housing plan. To provide an update of where we're at in, in terms of a number of things that I, I will say are active right now, um, and this represents um, the projects, I, I will say, kind of come from three areas. Um, one is what is presented in the implementation sections of the master plan, saying do these activities and, and uh, provide some uh, framework for, for fiscal years in which to accomplish them. Uh, they come from resolutions that have been passed by the City Planning Commission or the City Council and, and saying we'd like you to work on these particular things. Uh, and then some are citizen initiated, um, whether through through neighborhood associations or groups that have brought ideas um, forth on, on which to to work. Um, so projects in progress, and I think you've got um, the list of these in front of you. Um, I don't necessarily have to go through all of them unless there's ones in particular that you're interested in, um, but we have a wide variety of projects. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm trying to clean up is I'll call it open items, um, open ordinances especially that have been adopted that we need to take some action on. Um, and so to bring those to a close, um, the Libby Hill view shed uh, is one of them uh, that's been out there uh, as well as um, uh, ordinance to formally establish our public art commission. Um, the small area plan for Shaco, um, we're just finishing up uh, a revision on that and the reworking to bring that back to the Shaco Alliance in, in April. Um, so that can move through the process because that precludes, you know, rezoning or other activities in that area. Um, some work on our parklets and streeteries to open them up for, for private uh, use. Uh, and then the Diamond District has been moving forward very quickly, um, but we also know there's a window of opportunity um, for that. And so working through that process to uh, vet proposals. Um, some changes uh, in, in terms of looking at our guidelines for the Commission of Architectural Review. Um, you know, looking at from the, the guideline standpoint, um, and we've had some uh, turnover and change with our staff there. So making sure um, that we're doing that as efficiently as, as possible, um, along with, you know, potential consideration discussed later about the expansion of some other districts and what that may mean. Um, I'll call it three moves with ADUs, STRs and parking requirements um, to, to look at some changes when it comes to those sections of our zoning code before we get to a, a full rewrite. Um, and then uh, also again, following on the heels of adoption of the Innovation District uh, City Center plan, uh, moving forward with rezoning in that area. Um, again, to there's a lot of city-owned property, and and how do we move forward with uh, redevelopment for uh, those parcels in that area? Um, design overlay old historic district um, for both Jackson Ward and and Carver. Um, as you know, we're working well later on here, um, a lot of projects in and around this neighborhood, um, but they're all really, you know, tied together. Uh, that also involves the highway capping project and the small area plan for the Gilpin neighborhood. Um, and so working these things together um, to, to really look at um, 
you know, how those pieces fall into place and, and moving forward, both from physical development, but then also, um, you know, looking at, at what's there in terms of that uh, historic neighborhood. Um, market value analysis, um, look again, you know, housing market has been, I, I didn't even have a word to describe it <laughs> over the last few years, um, but, but determining, um, you know, where we're at in terms of the market and in terms of, of units and demand uh, within the city, getting a better understand. So as we do this rezoning to allow for units to come online that are sorely needed in the city, um, after adoption of the Shaco small area plan, followed by you know rezoning in that area, um, kind of a hybrid of, of the Main Street um, Pulse Corridor, but also Greater Shaco, uh, and then Coliseum redevelopment, um, again, once the rezoning is done, moving forward with uh, parcels and then how those get redeveloped. Uh, and then also a, a second look at some of the area around um, the Allison Pulse stations. Um, something we, and again, um, didn't really have a zoning category for at the time. Um, but how do we deal with these areas, these neighborhoods that are, I'll call it, wedged between our major transit corridors and then some lower density development? How do we make that transition um, and just don't have maybe the right zoning districts in place. So looking at um, this and, and other areas for um, rezoning. So those are all things that I'll say have been opened up on, on which our staff is working right now. We also do a lot of supporting work um, in, in terms of working with other agencies um, that are not necessarily- Mr. Bond, before you move yeah, on to the uh, big move supporting, uh, Councilwoman Nye has a question. Thank you, Dr. Nabal. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to bring up the Stony Point small area plan um, because that was a recommendation out of the Richmond 300 and I think the time is right to start that process since the um, the mall has or is in the process of being um, acquired by a new owner um, and the community is really supportive of seeing some changes there that would bring some life back into that area. So I, I'm gonna, I, I yeah. didn't see it on the list, but nope, hopefully it's, it's, it's on the next list. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm that's, sorry. No, that's okay. But I'm, 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 if you allow me to circle back, I will circle back on that one. What? I will circle back on okay, that one. Okay. Thank in you. A moment, yes. Thank you. Um, so you know, talking about just the, the open projects or the things which are involved. Um, a lot of transportation related um, items, you know, the fall lane trail, um, transit expansion of another BRT route, um, along with like our own footprint in the city, right? Where are facilities? Where are we building, consolidating? You know, what's the best footprint for the city, both in terms of our, our government, but also for our residents when we talk about, you know, parks and community centers. Um, I know Parks and Rec is, is launching their, um, you know, planning process and, and how does that all fit in together? Um, and, and there's a lot of work that we do um, with these other departments in the community to make sure, again, um, as, as we look how they fit in with the vision in, in Richmond 300. All right, so the list of all the other things that are in Richmond 300, um, talking about scheduling. So there's a number of things um, that are listed in there for tackling in fiscal year 22 and beyond. Um, it kind of set out the first five years of projects um, in terms of, of highway capping, um, downtown, this talked about portions of the expressway, uh, pocket parks, and Monroe Ward, um, working on a small area plan for Southside Plaza to follow the, the market study, uh, an, archaeology, an archaeology ordinance, 
small area plan for Stony Point. Um, I think one of the things that um, in terms of, of, of timing and form, and this is where I talk about implementation of following the spirit and intent, but maybe not in the exact same manner. And that is um, Stony Point is right in the process of being sold. Um, and so looking at that as a unit, but the unit is owned or probably will be owned by one property owner. So is it a small area plan or there's actually a, com a community unit plan that governs the whole unit? Perhaps it's not the small area plan, but it's looking at the CUP in terms of community unit plan of, of how we work on revisions to that. Um, because I think there is a desire both from the community and um, you know to, to make sure um, to make that a vibrant shopping center and add residents to that area. Um, and so how do we do that? It's maybe not a small area plan, maybe it's a CUP, maybe that's semantics, but these are some of the things that you know we want to talk through about like the best way to implement it. Um, you know, how what's what's the mechanism for doing so? Um, so some of these things um, you know may take a little bit of a twist, but I think it's important um, to have these discussions between you know our administration and the council to, to keep you apprised of, of on which we're working. And if there's other things, again, based on maybe um, timing or opportunity, um, how we could look at maybe doing these sooner than later or mm -hmm. what maybe could wait um, or what could maybe be done differently. Um, and I'll say, you know, something on here in terms of the zoning ordinance, the RFP and, and rewrite, um, I think we are in a good spot to be able to move forward um, with that and, and secure funding um, or uh, moving forward with doing the RFP and then launching on the rewrite. Um, and I think, as I mentioned before, uh, a rewrite is valuable in the sense it could perhaps capture some of the other implementation things we want to do um, about creating better zoning districts, adding more form, um, adding design elements, and, and doing things that um, you know don't just apply to one neighborhood, but could apply for neighborhoods throughout the city. And you know when I talk about the timing of when we're doing these things, I think maybe the ways that we could look at doing that through the zoning uh, ordinance rewrite um, may be able to help accomplish that sooner than later um, throughout throughout the city. And so there's also a continuation of. I just um, had a. Oh, yep. I'm yeah. sorry. Just quick question. Um, that slide. I just wanted clarification. Zoning ordinance RFP rewrite the zoning ordinance. Is that just basically? Putting the RFP out? Yes. Right? So, okay. I mean, they, they were identified as specific tasks, but they said, look, if you're going to make, right, that's number one of the six big moves is like rewrite the zoning ordinance. Right. We do not have the capacity to do that in-house. Okay. And so we will need to write a request for proposals to have a consultant help us through that process. Okay. And so if we can move, it was suggested in fiscal year 22 to get that RFP out on the street, then in fiscal year, you know, 22, 23, or beyond, that we'd actually be doing the work. Um, but the first goal is to to get that RFP out there um, mm -hmm. so we can find out who and what it will cost to, to do this. Would that be all part of that, um, that um, the funding for the study? Yes. That, okay, mm -hmm. okay, mm -hmm. cool. Thank you. I have a Sorry. Councilwoman Jordan and then Councilwoman Miller. Yeah, you sort of referenced that it sounds like you have funding, but I just want to confirm you've got the funding for the RFP and the rewrite. Yes. Can I? Can we get that on record? Otherwise, I've got a bunch of Can I phone a friend and I will ask Mr. Jason May to comment on that? Thank you. And I would like that to be more, to the extent that we can expedite that. I think it would be really helpful because the further away we get from when Richmond 300 was adopted, the further it just 
you know, we want these things to be closer aligned. Thank you. Good afternoon, Jason May, Director of Budget and Strategic Planning. So when we were going through the second quarter uh, projections, we uh, worked together with Mr. Vaughn to look at his projections for the end of the year and notice that he had, uh, unfortunately, some vacancy savings in FY22. We've now pushed that vacancy savings to be able to put the zoning rewrite, should be able to get that process started in FY22, carry over into FY23 and be able to get that completed. Thank you. Councilwoman Nye. So same, same question for the Stony Point, um, whether it's a small area plan or a CUP revision, um, and we can dig into that more offline because I, I'm sure the developer is going to want to do some revisions to the CUP as well. So, those, yeah, yeah, I think in, in, in terms of, you know, with that, um, yeah, I mean, it, it is what it is in terms of the funding. We had vacancies and so to uh, appreciate the effort to be able to allocate those and carry those over forward to, to use that funding for these specific things that I think. I've asked for, you've asked for, and, and get those done. Um, I think evaluating, you know, what that mechanism is for a small area plan versus a CUP. Mm -hmm. um, you know, traditionally that would just go through our, our, our land use process and may need may, may need not a whole lot um, of extra funding. But depending, again, this is probably one of our larger. I'm mm -hmm. gonna look at Matt for a second. Vale or just community unit plan. We right. may want to bring in. You know, it won't be necessarily a full small area plan, but right. we may want to bring in some outside help just to help manage the process. Okay. And, and we do have some uh, funds allocated, um, you know, for consultant services that, that we're able to tap into for various projects throughout the year. Okay. Um, we try and kind of keep a top line to keep those flexible as, as needs come through, but um, we will be able to, to help get that process done. Oh, that's great news. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that when we're working on this, we don't necessarily have to include the entire um, area in the CUP because it is massive. And, you know, the the we call it the old Stony Point, but the Stony Point area that's with the Trader Joe's and everything, they're just, I think neighbors are really less concerned about that. And that's just, re, that kind of is what it is at this point. And more, the focus is more on the shopping center. Yeah, um, I would say that CUP is probably the size of some Virginia municipalities. It's <laughs> huge. Um, and so, you know, I think that is also the time to kind of reevaluate the scope and boundaries of that in terms of uh, the concerns that were there when it was created are not the same concerns that are there today. Um, and so okay. I think that's the that's, time to, to right size it. We've that. actually had some issues in the past of people who are inadvertently in that CUP residence and it's been complicated yeah. for them to do work on their house that would be normal mm -hmm. if they weren't under a CUP. So if yeah. we could do that, I think that would be really helpful. Yeah. And that's when we talk about you know, right sizing things. Um, I think we had to go through the legislative process to get somebody to build a garage. Yes. Last year. Yeah. No, yeah. I felt so I felt those really are things bad. like, yes, yeah. focus on the important bigger picture items. Okay, great. Thank you. I'm really excited about this. Thank you, Mr. Vaughn. Just a quick question. In terms of the market value analysis update, how close are we to completing? And is that a collaborative effort? It is. Um, okay. I don't know. Maritza Peachin has been working on it. I don't know if Sharon, have you been working on that one at all? Is that Maritza's? Okay. Funding. We're out of funding for that one. 
Oh. So, so we've stalled out a little bit on, on okay. there. Well, I'm looking at it was saying start it but finish. So in order to complete it by autumn 2022, we need additional resources is what you're saying. Okay. Yes. Well, and I think that's one of the things when we look at, um, you know, working with, with Mr. May and, and the reappropriation um, as third quarter comes to a close, getting a better understanding of just where we're tracking and projecting um, and what funds we have left in this year's bucket in terms of, um, you know, consultant services, management services to be able to see what we have for, for funding. So hopefully within the next few weeks as those numbers come through, we'll have a better indication of if we're able to move forward with the next steps for that piece. Thank you. Okay. Um, and then the other slides just kind of show, you know, longer term projects and beyond as we go into, um, you know, the coming fiscal year, um, looking on uh, a lot of things uh, south side around Manchester, um, Route 1 and Bell Mead, Route 1 and Bells, um, south side plaza. Um, these are also some things as we look at, um, Again, opportunities and partnering uh, with uh, redevelopment or housing authority, uh, but also other projects that potentially could be coming online where we may look at some of those timing uh, for some of those particular projects, um, but really being able to, to move forth with, you know, kind of the next planning efforts and then zoning efforts for, for some of those areas. Um, I think one of the, you know, the questions that, that we talk about is, you know, when do we do a small area plan? Uh, versus when do we want to move straight to zoning? Um, and I think, you know, it depends on the size, the number of landowners involved, um, and how we have those conversations. The other piece, and I, I go back to the zoning code, is, you know, we can only zone with the districts we have right now. Um, and so at a point, if we can move forward with the, the zoning rewrite, um, you know, not having to create new districts or define new districts, I think is something that um, you know, we can get things that are more appropriate that help us get to the vision outlined in Richmond 300. Um, and then just some other things that are, again, further along in the horizon. Um, and then also some design overlays, I'll say that have been hanging out there um, in terms of discussions. Um, Shaka West of Boulevard does have a design overlay district. Um, there's been talks about I should say that the neighborhood um, desire to maybe have some changes on that, as well as the the fan um, had a process where they went through and, and had some agreement, uh, but then stalled out for a little bit. And, and obviously there's been transition. Um, and so where those get picked up in terms of um, respecting the process that's outlined in your ordinance that allows for some of these to be moved forward um, by the residents um, and in terms of kind of voting amongst themselves to, to move that forward. Um, those are projects that are on the horizon, but not have, have not yet been formally scheduled yet. Um, that is where we're at and where we're going. Another question, um, Councilman Jones. Yes, ma'am. Uh, thank you, Mr. Font, for uh, this this information. Where does just just looking at the um, looking at the master plan and looking at central nodes and things of that nature? Um, where does where, where does Lothian Lothian Chippenham project come in and factor into all. Just trying to understand. Sure. Um, Midlothian is is discussed. It wasn't identified as a particular 
um, action item in the kind of first phase um, of implementation. But I will say one of the areas that we've looked at is how does um, how do Midlothian and Hall fit in and around Southside Plaza? And that is, um, as we both discuss, um, you know, transit, as we discuss redevelopment of Southside Plaza, um, how are those connected back to the core of the city through both Midlothian and Hall? And how are those connected um, to the west, to Chesterfield? Another tornado again? I hope not. Right? <laughs> One's enough, right? Um, and, and so I think part of that will revolve around moving forward with, with Southside Plaza um, in terms of from a specific land use perspective um, and then developing that node. Um, but there is, is, is not any, um, say, city-initiated rezoning or small area plan for those particular corridors right now. And, and, and only thing, just I mean, as we look at this, this is very north side, very north centric. Look at all you want. Um, and so as we talk again, everyone loves equity until it's time to be equitable. Folk that live on the local turnpike, folk that live on Paul Street, some of us we may not venture down to Southside Plaza because you know I keep hearing that. You know that that that's not in our necessarily our normal travels, depending upon where you are. South side, but that that corridor on Milwaukee Turnpike, corridor on Hall Street, it, it it just needs attention. I mean, it, it, it does, and so, so not even being listed on here means that it's years uh, before you know, focus on the things of that nature. And that's why, and again, this predates you. That's why we pulled out the whole discussion on B3 and the impact in the Ninth District uh, and on South Side. Because it would have never been addressed, and so we've got major issues from the zoning perspective, um, and just from so many different areas that the attention is needed. And a lot of again, and I understand, you know, where where hey the riverfront, you know we're not the riverfront, we're not downtown, we're not you know we're not Stony Point, we're not all these areas, but we are, we, we exist, and. What I would love to see, Madam President, is, is that emphasis that we that some of these areas are included. Glad that it's in the master plan, but what are we going to do about it? What's going to be done with it? Because as I see it, man, this is just pushing down, pushing us down the road to insignificance. Um, I think. Part of the reason, you know, for putting all of these on here is, I mean, to have some of those discussions and, and being honest about, um, you know, you kind of see what's been opened up or what we're working on so far and the master plan, I'll say, prescribing a list of recommended activities. Um, I, I think in terms of, you know, the, the pleasure of this body, um, you know, opportunities that may exist, uh, the implementation list is just that and a list and a guide. Uh, in terms of on which we're actually working. Um, and that, that's one of the challenges that we have in terms of uh, how, how do we look at it in terms of uh, equity throughout the city, in terms of geographically, um, and where we focus uh, some of that attention. And so some of these discussions, um, I think, you know, to continue to have that uh, direction and understanding, um, you know, for us is important uh, because it does, uh, provide those opportunities for us to say, look, 
you know, based on the resources we have or, um, you know, what are we able to apply and where are we able to apply that? And so I think in, in terms of, you know, this body, um, you know, looking at that list of projects to schedule, um, we are looking, you know, for, for feedback in terms of moving forward with pieces of implementation and, and how do we look at, um, you know, moving forward with that uh, throughout all of our neighborhoods. Right, and I'm just going to take you back to page two. And, and I'll read page two for you. Um, Richmond is a welcoming, inclusive, diverse, innovative, sustainable, and equitable city, driving neighborhoods achieve high quality of life. I hear that in principle. I don't see that in praxis. This particular document. Not, and again, this we're just having a discussion about it. Though. So, so again, as we talk about previous acquiring now. We know the growth that's going to take place on the south side. We know the housing issues that are, that are there and are coming. That we need density. And I don't want to have a series of one-offs where we just try and just zone particular areas, something of that nature. But again, how do we address this comprehensively, not get out over our skis or not try to force one particular ideology or agenda that is so myopic and focused on one area this is okay how does this fit into whole scope of what you're all accomplishing madam president i would just challenge us again look at this from equity and need is where we're going to be in the next five to ten years on the south side <laughs> it's going to be interesting i just met with some folks this, this past week um, and we talked about housing issues. We're going to have a city has a housing crisis, but the South Side is about to have a housing crisis where individuals will not be able to afford. Eighth and Ninth District, at one point in time, that that was affordable living. Just like you know, parts of North Side. I mean, my grandmother lived on, uh, <laughs> you know, on, on North on North Avenue, thirty six hundred three North Ave. She couldn't afford to live there. She, you know. Uh, Thank God my father-in-law moved in, but he sold a house in Virginia Beach that allowed him to buy uh, over on Overbrook Road. But I'm looking at a major housing crisis in the South Side where historically your workers from Philip Morris, DuPont, were able to live there in great neighborhoods like Edwards and places like that. That and so I mean, so as I think about where 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 do where do folk live in the city? You know, a house that I bought two years ago, 180. Right now, I love it, but it, it's it's scary. We're talking 270. In the same the same same houses in the same neighborhood. And so we need density. There are things that we need. We've got to, you know, we we're gonna need mixed use developers. We're gonna look need to look and see. You know what goes on on that corridor, and what happens, and how how do we best meet the needs of Southside residents? Because it's going to explode, and we're going to have some major major issues. Thank you, thank you Councilman Jones, uh, Mr. Bond. Um, I want to say thank you for the presentation, and a um, couple of things as you've heard from members, um, a report back. Uh, to OD that gives us some sense of progress relative to uh, the staffing 
And I think you hear also, um, certainly from Mr. Jones, um, some sort of review and advising relative to a projection for scheduling uh, study relative to Midlothian Southside, et cetera, as we look at prospectively how we began to build these pieces. And so those two um, elements, but um, absolutely appreciative of the update relative to staffing and studies. Great. Thank, Thank you. you for your time. believe that we have um, another presentation and this is budget presentation relative to fleet. Is that correct? Good afternoon, Madam President, members Good of afternoon. Council. Good afternoon. Welcome. Thank you. My name is Adam Hole. I'm a policy advisor working in support of the operations portfolio. And I want to start off by just saying thank you all for the opportunity to present today on our capital vehicle and equipment budget request, uh, which is in line with our fleet unity plan uh, and will also include a uh, particular emphasis on our leveraging our intent to leverage uh, federal funding opportunities under the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act as pertaining to some of our green fleet initiatives. I also want to extend appreciation to Bobby Vincent, Gail Johnson, Calvin Chambliss, as well as others in DPW and the administration whose great work uh, we have the privilege of presenting on today. So we're going to come back to this slide at the end of this presentation, but we did want to provide an overview upfront of the FY23 proposed budget for capital vehicle uh, and equipment. And as we'll describe in this presentation and as supported through audit recommendations, as well as industry standards, we simply have too many passenger and light duty class two or three vehicles in our municipal fleet. We currently have nearly 2000 vehicles in the fleet and many of the specifically class two and three vehicles are underutilized leading to inefficiencies and uh, maintenance and operational costs. And so the intent uh, behind this budget is really to balance and circulate our existing class two and three vehicles before purchasing new ones. And so the FY23 capital vehicle and equipment budget is really focused, as you can see, on our key critical fleet that provide essential city services. And that includes our public safety vehicles, specifically our fire apparatus and police vehicles, as well as our solid waste refuse. In addition to the necessary wraparound costs, such as upfitting these vehicles with radios and equipment and other technology necessary to uh, perform them. Simultaneously, though, as, as I mentioned, uh, we're um, planning to, to work to balance and right size the existing fleet and the existing assets that we do have to really be as efficient and as cost effective as possible. Uh, and so we're going to, in today's presentation, just provide a little bit more uh, justification and context why we are proposing this path forward and specifically as outlined in the plan. Yes, Councilwoman. Thank you. I just had a quick question. Can you just explain to me um, what do you mean by class two and class three vehicles? What is What vehicles is that? 
Thank sure. You. So class two and three vehicles typically are the light duty uh, sedan vehicles that are used for um, everyday city business. So not not looking at our solid waste vehicles or our fire engines, um, the light duty sedans and, and SUVs. So to just provide a, a short background, I think we can all agree that vehicles are critical tools for delivery of city services. And again, this includes not only vehicles in public safety, uh, fire and police, but also those uh, in our operations uh, portfolio uh, that perform trash collection, roadway maintenance, uh, vehicles in our parks department that help to maintain the parks that we all enjoy, as well as uh, vehicles that meet the social services needs of city residents. Uh, as mentioned, we have nearly 2,000 vehicles in the city's fleet, and each one of those is charged with supporting some aspect of public service on behalf of the city. A little over a year ago, we began preliminary discussions around how best to strategize and prioritize uh, both the short and long-term planning for that municipal fleet. And after a multi-departmental collaborative effort last year, which included a review of industry standards, as well as city studies and reports, and incorporating recommendations from the city auditor, we developed the first version of the Fleet Unity Plan this past fall. That plan was presented to the Governmental Operations Standing Committee. Can you step a little closer to the microphone? Oh, yes, please. Uh, <clears throat> so we developed the first draft of the uh, Fleet Unity Plan, uh, which was presented to the Governmental Operations Standing Committee uh, last October and again this past January and following the most recent presentation some council members uh, took the opportunity to tour the Fleet Operations Center, and I know the team out there certainly appreciated that visit. So the, the purpose of the Fleet Unity Plan is really to inform our current and future decision-making related to the city's fleet. Uh, and that includes the establishment of citywide priorities and strategies, really with the goal of achieving an optimal composition of vehicles uh, really trying to find the right number and the right type of vehicles and making sure that those vehicles are assigned to the appropriate functional areas, all while continuing to provide or ideally enhance our delivery of critical city services. The plan outlines core concepts uh, which are intended to serve as guiding principles and those include a reliance and trust in the professional expertise of the fleet management division led by Calvin Chambliss and specifically how they uh, oversee and maintain the municipal fleet in the city's best interests. Another core concept pertains to an assessment of the current state of the fleet, uh, and this builds upon practices that Mr. Chambliss and the fleet team are currently employing and allows us to use a data-driven approach to really better understand not only, not only what our current fleet composition is, but also be able to make more informed decisions on what we want the optimal fleet composition to look like. And finally, the, the plan emphasis, emphasizes the importance of planning for the future municipal fleet, which includes a continued prioritization using data, as well as encouraging best practices related to the development of a rolling five-year budget informed by our established priorities. And also ensuring that we have an effective acquisition process, including uh, the phases of specification, procurement, commissioning, and decommissioning of city vehicles. And of course, there are other planning considerations outlined in the Fleet Unity Plan, um, but these are really the core concepts or pillars that we see as fundamental to how we ensure the best municipal fleet operation uh, for today, but also for moving forward. 
So the plate unity plan uh, modeled after Richmond 300 is organized into seven big moves or primary steps for implementation. And we'll discuss uh, a few of these uh, priorities uh, in greater detail momentarily, but just briefly to go through these seven. Uh, the first big move is to adopt professional standards for reliability, which ensures that we have a consistent standard by which we are evaluating vehicle age, type, and function against what the departmental requirements are. And these include readiness standards for our key critical fleet uh, that are responsible for delivering our essential and our emergency services. The second big move is a fleet dominated by electric vehicles. And this is in, intended to be in deliberate alignment with other city goals and initiatives, including the equity agenda and RBA Green 2050, really to begin the process of transitioning our fleet to uh, zero emission or electric. Uh, and of course, that includes the necessary charging infrastructure to support that transition and ongoing operation. And we've got a couple of additional slides uh, later on in this presentation uh, that will discuss this in more detail. The third big move is to properly resource our fleet management division. Uh, something that we take a lot of pride in mentioning is the city has a nationally recognized fleet. Uh, we were recently ranked 10th in the 100 best fleets uh, by Fleet Management Association. And we were also recognized as one of government fleet magazines, notable fleets. And of course, this is a reflection of the great and hard work of Mr. Chambliss and his team. Um, but as part of this plan, we want to continue to ensure that the fleet team is properly staffed and resourced to continue that, that work and implementation of this plan. The fourth big move is to balance and right-size the fleet. And this goes back to previous comments of ensuring that we have an optimal fleet composition to provide for effective delivery of uh, services and efficient uses of uh, our resources. And, and that may include reassignment of vehicles to different areas, uh, vehicle ro uh, rotation or increased use of the motor pool. The fifth big move is strategic financing, and that really asks us to, uh, through any implementation involving expenditure related to the fleet uh, to consider what the most strategic means of financing uh, will be. And of course, that will include a close collaboration with our colleagues in budget and strategic planning, as well as the finance departments, but it may include uh, some combination of creating a recurring funding reference in the annual budget, uh, putting together a multi-year schedule for vehicle purchasing and replacements, uh, cash funding of our fleet um, purchases, grant funding, or uh, use of a special fund. The sixth big move is to incorporate technology and innovation, and this really asks us to be on the front line of embracing new technology and solutions that may allow us to enhance city services, reduce costs, or achieve city um, outcome or citywide uh, outcomes and priorities as outlined in the uh, RBA Green 2050 plan or the equity agenda or, or other initiatives. And last but not least, uh, uh, Big Move 7 really pertains to exploring a potential reimbursement program and calls for a review of personally assigned city vehicles and asks us to make a determination whether it may be more efficient to instead reimburse uh, those employees to use their personal vehicles for city business as opposed to having a personally assigned city vehicle. Uh, that uh, could potentially be reassigned and, and better used elsewhere. So, of, of course, all seven of those big moves are uh, important and essential to successfully achieving the strategy of the fleet unity plan. 
and will certainly drive both the short and long-term actions, but several have been identified as key priorities moving into the upcoming fiscal year and from which our proposed budget is derived. So the first big move to adopt professional standards for reliability, we, we have adopted a procedure housed in the Department of Public Works, which calls for the adoption of professional reliability standards for our fleet. Uh, the current version begins with our key critical fleet, specifically those in public safety, uh, including fire and police, and incorporates standards from the National Fire Protection Association, as well as the manufacturer of police patrol vehicles. The intent, though, of this procedure is that it will be updated in future um, uh, to include revised standards as well as to incorporate additional functional areas. The second big move uh, that is a priority area for the upcoming fiscal year is a fleet dominated by electric vehicles, and uh, we'll expand on this uh, even more in the next couple of slides. But in short, we are prioritizing planning forward with electric vehicle charging infrastructure as a first step. And once that is in place, uh, we would like to begin the transition and acquisition of the vehicles themselves. The third big move is to properly resource the fleet management division. A lot of progress has been made on big move three, uh, including recruitment prioritization and um, looking at our key critical fleet or positions for the fleet management division. Uh, and this is an area that we can um, we would like to continue to emphasize to, to really make sure that Mr. Chambliss and his team um, have the resources that they need and, and they have the correct staff to vehicle ratio in order to be as successful as possible. The fourth big move um, that is a priority for the upcoming fiscal year is to uh, really balance and right size our fleet. So as mentioned, uh, we would like to look at what current assets we have in the city and uh, through that analysis, really uh, make sure that we are making adjustments as, as appropriate and allow the fleet management uh, division to, to make those decisions based on all the information and expertise that they have. And finally, on, on big move seven, one means of adjusting to that more balanced fleet is ensuring that we are repurposing our underutilized vehicles. And this is something that uh, came out of an audit recommendation within uh, recent years, but we, we want to look at vehicles that are currently um, underutilized by, by certain staff uh, to see whether or not they may be able to serve a higher and better capacity elsewhere, and in turn uh, considering reimbursement of those employees for use of their personal vehicles as they perform city functions. So currently we're in the analysis phase of determining what this program may look like, and we certainly expect that this, this analysis is going to provide uh, insight into the most effective and efficient path forward. Yes, I have a question, Councilwoman Lambert. Thank you, Madam Chair, and thank you for this presentation. Very informative. Um, one question I had was, and you kind of alluded to it, what do you all do with all the vehicles um, after they've been decommissioned? Um, are those, are they resold? Are they going back to an auction? Glad to hear you're trying to repurpose just trying to get, get an idea of, you know, is there is this another revenue stream that we can look into for vehicles that are not being utilized by the city? You can just elaborate on that. And I, I believe that our uh, fleet manager, Calvin Chambliss, may be on the, the team's meeting, so please feel free to, to chime in if you have any additional expertise. But um, I, I think that, in short, Madam President, it, it depends on the uh, condition or the state of the vehicle vehicle um, in some cases it, it may be um, 
most efficient to salvage that vehicle. It, it may be um, just needing to be taken out of service, but I think it, it really depends on um, what the, the condition of the vehicle is at the at the end of its useful life. Um, but one of what we have really been looking at diligently um, is is what is that useful life? And I, mm -hmm. I, I think that for uh, certain functional areas, it, it will vary. Mm -hmm. um, but our taking our uh, fire apparatus as an example, uh, we have the, the the National Fire Protection Association standards that we uh, referenced earlier, and there it specifically calls for uh, a set number of uh, years and and usage hours that that we want to look at and say this is the useful life of one of these uh, pieces of equipment. Uh, once it reaches that life, we want to make sure that we're we're retiring it out, and and of course being as efficient as possible with that. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Hall. Looks like uh, Mr. Vincent is coming forward to add to the Anthony. conversation. Thank you. Good afternoon, um, Council Bobby Vincent, Director of Public Works. Um, generally speaking, when we sell those um, vehicles um, that are deemed um, to be in relatively poor condition, the funds are recycled within our internal service fund, okay. uh, which basically helps to supplement the general fund. It's, generally speaking, it's a very small amount. And, but it does help us to be able to be in position to better maintain vehicles that's coming from um, from the general service. Okay, thank you. And I see that um, that line where your internal service fund is jumping, like um, what's actual and what's for 2023. I saw that number. Yes, ma'am. Um, can you just explain to me why it's jumping so high? Good afternoon, Jason May, Director of Budget and Strategic Planning. So the ISF for fleet is going up uh, for a couple of different reasons. Um, first is the uh, employee uh, raise for this year, the 5%. Okay. Um, the other is, is that there are a number of employees over at the fleet that were less than the $17 an hour. So that's also going up. Okay. You also see health insurance and retirement also went up as well. So that's the cause of the, uh, the major increase for fleet for FY23. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Benson and Mr. May. Mr. Hall. Oh, Councilman Jones. Yes, ma'am. I don't know how we get back in whether that uh, that uh, bit of tech is lost on uh, <laughs> our system here. But uh, real, real, real quick, sir. Thank you for your presentation. Uh, as we look at 97 patrol vehicles. Um, are, are we where, where where is the city on the purchasing or utilization of paramilitary vehicles? I know there are different forces around the country um, that um, have diversified their fleet uh, to include paramilitary paramilitary uh, vehicles. First question. Second, uh, are we are we looking at our fleet from um, what lens are we looking at our fleet from? Is it just simply vehicles, cars, and things of that nature, or are we looking at other ways to deliver policing services and have that reflected in the vehicles that we uh, provide? And that that may be a question, Madam President, for uh, the chief, uh, but. I was just saying, I wouldn't want to, to opine too terribly much, Councilmember Jones, uh, on that without Chief Smith or uh, Chief Carter being a part of that. 
Um, I can tell you that we are focusing on getting more uh, police vehicles uh, into the uh, into the rotation. I believe that they have uh, about 540 uh, vehicles that are over five years old at this moment in time. So again, we're trying to get to a place where we're starting to get those rotated. The other piece of it is, is that we want to make sure that we do that strategically. We don't want to set ourselves up for another uh, cliff in five years or in 10 years for, for fire apparatus. We don't want to go buy 20 uh, fire uh, engines this year because in 10 years that means that those 20 fire engines will then be 10 years old and will put us in another position. We want to make sure that we're doing this in a, in a very consistent uh, manner so that we make sure that we set ourselves up to be able to do this continually. All right, thank you. Then, uh, uh, Madam President, if we could ask uh, our NMA yes. Council Chief of Staff we'll put that to on just the make list. a note, uh, please, that'd be great. Thank you. And that being um, feedback as uh, Mr. May and Mr. Mm -hmm. Hall have said, from yeah, the just, chief just, just relative just the chief's position on yeah, utilization of paramilitary exactly. uh, uh, I vehicles, have it. Uh, and then how are they approaching new techniques in policing, and how is that? Uh, uh, how does that carry over to the vehicles that they purchase or could potentially purchase? Thank you, Mr. Jones. I think we will have that. Thank you. Mr. Hall. <clears throat> so as mentioned, we, we did want to circle back to Big Move 2, uh, which is a fleet dominated by electric vehicles. And we thought it might be helpful to provide some additional information as there has been uh, some really great conversation at the committee level. Um, and we certainly appreciate the, the input that uh, and support that this initiative has received there. Uh, in short, though, we see the future city of Richmond fleet as one dominated by electric vehicles. And this is supported and in alignment with the Richmond equity agenda, as well as RVA Green 2050 and other city initiatives. And to achieve this, uh, we really believe that the initial focus should be on transitioning our class two and three or, or light duty sedan um, vehicles, which will first require that we have the necessary charging infrastructure in place. And so that includes considerations for uh, grid connection, uh, the appropriate hardware, as well as battery storage and disposal. We'd like to begin the planning and implementation work for this in the coming fiscal years. And as necessary, as the necessary infrastructure is built, we'll certainly be prepared to begin uh, to accommodate uh, the acquisition of additional electric or hybrid vehicles. Now to support this work, the, the city is intending to leverage federal funding opportunities and best practices, uh, including those available in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act or IIJA, uh, as well as other sources, um, some of which we have listed here on the slide for reference, uh, really to illustrate uh, that our intent is to leave no stone unturned in capitalizing on available federal funds to support this uh, incredibly important initiative. In addition to all of the ongoing planning around charging infrastructure, fleet management is also working collaboratively with the police department on a hybrid police interceptor pilot program. And so the intent of this pilot is really to assess the hybrid vehicle against RPD's uh, functional requirements in order to make a determination on future purchases and acquisitions as we work toward an overall greener fleet. Now, uh, just for a little bit of uh, additional context, we ordered the hybrid interceptor for this pilot program last summer, and um, we're still awaiting its arrival from the manufacturer, uh, but we're certainly not the only municipality in a, a situation like this. I think as 
as manufacturers continue to be delayed by national shortages. Um, you can see it uh, illustrated here in this excerpt from a Wall Street Journal article from just earlier this week. Uh, it, it, there's certainly um, a significant amount of national shortages that are uh, delaying these, uh, these types of purchases across the country. Once we do receive the vehicle for the pilot though, uh, fleet management uh, in conjunction with the police department will be conducting an evaluation to better inform our future vehicle purchases. Uh, one thing to note though, the, the hybrid vehicles are more expensive than a standard interceptor, uh, which is something we uh, plan to take into account as part of that evaluation period. But uh, we certainly look forward to providing additional updates on this, this pilot and our recommendations once we complete that analysis and have more information. Mr. Hall, before you proceed to the next um, couple of questions, Councilwoman Lambert and then Councilwoman Jordan. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, quick question. The uh, electric vehicles, are those similar to the vehicles that um, are being broken into, like the catalytic converters? Does that have the same type of um, equipment or parts that we see a, a huge crime going on here in the city of people's you know, parts getting stolen. I didn't know if these vehicles included that, if that's something that we need to take into consideration too. I I, I don't believe for the pure electrics. Okay. Um, okay. That's, that's not an issue I've been okay. aware of. I just want to make sure because I get a lot of calls about that, but as we are going green, I know that's been an issue. Thank you. Thank you. Councilwoman Jordan. Thank you, Madam President. Um, I would love to see this slide updated with the savings when you're doing these calculations and comparisons on fuel costs, depreciation, maintenance, repair, and you know total cost of ownership. Because um, I think it's disingenuous to only highlight the cost increase up front and not talk about the full cost and savings. Um, and of course, that's separate from when we talk about you know, air quality and um, our goals as a city to be more resilient and sustainable, environmentally conscious. So um, I'm excited to see that this slide is even in the presentation. Would I guess like to ask, does this, I mean, so 97 vehicles, are we still moving forward with purchasing 97 traditional gas class two and three vehicles in your plan for this fiscal year? Madam President, at, at this point, that is the plan. Um, to, to speak to the um, earlier question or, or comment, that the intent is to, uh, once we've gone through this pilot evaluation period, um, be able to provide additional information or at least have additional insights into some of those uh, less tangible factors. So um, we, we spoke earlier about how this big move um, is in alignment with RBA Green 2050 and the equity agenda. Um, all of this this plan is you know, we're, we're trying to look at multiple factors of cost efficiency, effective service delivery, but there are some other factors as outlined in um, in those plans that necessarily that aren't necessarily going to be cost saving initiatives. They they may not necessarily uh, change or, or modify how we provide services, but they do have that greater community benefit and and work toward achieving our, our climate goals. And so I think that's that's what we would like to couple. The the cost is just one factor that we we have right now. Um, but but certainly to to your point, there there's a lot more that 
will and, and needs to go into that evaluation in order to, to paint a complete picture of, yes, maybe we are spending some additional funds on a hybrid vehicle, but this is what we're getting in return for that. Yeah, well, I would just underscore that, especially with volatility with gas prices. And I mean, we have a clear example with the Richmond Ambulance Authority that they were able to provide, you know, no no, no diminished service, call service with their um, you know, electric battery fleet, which they solar charge themselves on site. So we have right here in our own city, uh, you know, wonderful examples of this being successful. There are clearly examples in other police fleets where they've implemented this successfully. I just um, I'm not going to feel comfortable approving like saying this is our goal, we want to be in alignment, but we're going to buy all the gas cars now. So why would you not wait um, at least for a large portion of those purchases where applicable? And I do want to acknowledge that the right size in the fleet is fantastic. That That is huge for the overall goals. Um, I have total confidence in our fleet manager. We had a fantastic visit there. And I think there are lessons from his um, management style and, and, and his team to be replicated you know, across the city, certainly. But when I see a slide saying we're going to go ahead and buy 97 gas vehicles when we're in a climate emergency, we already have funding to get the EV infrastructure going. I just I'm going to balk at that every time. Thank you. Thank you. So I understand we uh, spent a lot of time on the fleet unity plan just now, but um, hopefully it helps to provide some illustration of um, how we came to this uh, proposed capital vehicle and equipment budget. Um, really, there was a lot of deliberate thought and planning. Uh, a lot of uh, subject matter experts put their heads together to to build this plan and, and help inform this proposed budget, um, which again, uh, for the upcoming fiscal year, is really focused on our key critical fleet in public safety as well as our, our solid waste uh, division, as well as the necessary upbit costs um, through the radio shop. In the meantime, though, um, as mentioned, our, our focus is really on uh, continuing the assessment and rebalancing of our existing fleet assets, and also to begin the planning work for uh, the future of an electric fleet, which um, really begins with uh, planning for the necessary charging infrastructure to accommodate that. So I realize there's a lot of information on this slide, um, but as we close out the presentation, we did want to provide a few key takeaways from this discussion. Um, the first of which is investing in uh, the replacement or repair of our fleet is, is really and truly a capital expense and one that should be done with respect to best practices and in accordance with citywide priorities and planning efforts. Um, the second, um, is drawing your attention to resolution 2021-R023, which was adopted by city council uh, in May of last year, but it calls for the annual appropriation of operating funds equal to 3% of the estimated tax revenues to the city's capital budget for capital maintenance purposes. And the, the proposed fleet budget uh, in alignment with the fleet unity plan really considers this and how we intend to invest in our municipal fleet of the future. Uh, third, because most fleet assets have a relatively short, uh, relatively short useful life, uh, the best practice and something uh, we would really like to begin consideration of is the purchase of city vehicles with cash funding. And finally, as outlined in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the responsibility of capital asset maintenance 
is something that should be prioritized and addressed by state and local government. And uh, that includes the regular reporting on deferred capital maintenance uh, to avoid ballooning costs without a clear path to address them. Uh, so I'm going to turn it over uh, to DCAO Bob Steidel now to speak a little bit more on the cash funding piece. Thank you, Mr. Hall. Thank you, Adam. And Madam President and members, thank you. I'm just here to make a plea. When the budget office worked so hard on this budget, we talked about the appropriate financing of our fleet assets. Vehicles should not be purchased on a credit card. Uh, the plan for this year is to buy our fleet assets with cash, $10 million cash. I, I cannot stress enough that is a best practice, and that is when I implore council to make sure that we keep that cash purchase in the budget for these assets. It, it just makes sense. We'll look good to everybody who sees how we operate with our um, with our scarce resources. So, so my my fervent message to you is is again, fleet needs to be fleet capital maintenance needs to be supported by cash. Thank you, uh, Mr. Stidell. Councilwoman Lambert. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, Mr. Stidell, is this was this previous practice um, purchasing vehicles on credit cards? Yes, ma'am. And in fact, if you look in the in the Internal Service Fund, you'll see Mr. Chambliss has to pay a large yeah. annual payment against debt. Yeah, service. that's why I was like looking at that amount. Like, what are we doing? So, okay, that yes, I just wanted to know. This, this, and, and there's, there were good reasons why in the past we had to borrow money to buy vehicles, but but we we should stop. We we should make and that decision. Is that an internal policy, or is that an ordinance, or how? Who came to that decision of doing that? If that was the case, the, the, the financial policies of the city are are. are <laughs> she was like, <laughs> no, not are, on me. You don't have. Are, are, are through the budget department, and, okay. and Mr. May can talk a little bit more about that. Okay, yeah, Mr. May, let us know how we are addressing this so we don't have to go so This is one of the first things that I noticed when I came to the city of Richmond. Um, for a city our size, we should be paying cash for our vehicles. Um, just for reference, and I think Mr. Rose mentioned this when he was uh, with us uh, last week, for every dollar that we borrow in short-term debt, it's $2 that we can't borrow in long-term debt. So when we go last year uh, to borrow $7 million to be able to purchase vehicles, in essence, we stopped ourselves from being able to borrow $14 million in long-term debt. In order for us to be able to start whittling away at some of the capital maintenance and some of the capital fleet uh, deferred uh, purchases that we need that we've not done in the past, we need to start being a little bit more strategic in the way that we purchase this. This is a very good way of being able to do it. $10 million is, is a a lot of money from the general fund to go to the uh, to the capital, but this does allow us long term to be able to get to a place where we start to not just pay uh, fleet, but pay our maintenance as well with cash. That allows us to be able to go and borrow and be able to do larger projects such as John Marshall Courthouse or some of the other pieces that are on the planning fund and some of the other larger projects we have. This is a piece where we're, and I'll be here with you on Monday to speak a little bit more about this around the CIP. This is a part of bringing strategy to the CIP. These are, are short-term, when we go purchase a patrol vehicle, if it lasts five years, it's great. Um, when we go buy a fire apparatus, 10 years is great. That's the, uh, 10 years is when you usually go into the, um, to the backup service. There's a term for that. I can't remember. Forgive me. But we want to make sure that we're not using 20-year debt to purchase things that we only have five years of useful life. That's just an internal policy that we're starting to build to. Now, council did pass back in June 
a resolution that puts the um, the goal for cash at 3% of the general fund. And again, on Monday, I'll speak a little bit more to this, but 3% of the general fund this year would be 25 million. That's that's a, a very large jump to try to make in one year. So we're trying to slowly each year build up to that place. But again, 25 million this year would fully fund our fleet, but also fully fund our maintenance. Um, and so that would get us to a place where I would have another 15 to probably 20 to maybe 30 million that we might be able to use to be able to put towards other larger projects. This is part of our ongoing push to be able to get to a place where we're using best practices in our capital. No Thank you, Mr. May. Councilwoman Jordan. Thank you. Just a follow-up question here. So just staying on how do we get EVs or hybrid vehicles into our fleet more quickly? Um, you know, obviously we can't take advantage of federal tax credits when we're purchasing, but I read in the Green Fleet report that was done a couple years ago that some municipalities have taken advantage of capital purchasing leases so that the leasing agency gets that federal tax credit, which, I mean, I think it's like $7,500 a vehicle would certainly uh, chip away at what I think you said was like 8,300 for the upfit or the surcharge. I mean, is that something you guys have considered or um, can you even buy the interceptors used just to start us getting down that road and off of pure gas? Thank that, you. That's, that, that's a, that is a pathway to be able to go forward on it. One of the things that we're currently investigating is the uh, bipartisan infrastructure uh, deal that the, uh, the, the Congress has just passed includes uh, a fair amount of EV and electric vehicle and some of the infrastructure behind it. Um, so that's when we are working with the Office of Sustainability, our partners in DPW, to be able to investigate those opportunities, to be able to look, to be able to bring some additional grant money in to be able to build that infrastructure. Um, the only issue with leasing is that, again, you you, you don't own. Um, it, it starts to throw some of the, the financing off. Our, our debt uh, becomes a, an issue. When you're paying cash up front for it, you own it. Um, and it's it, it, it's a, a matter of opinion. We, excuse me, it's a matter of research. We've not we've not done a, an awful lot of research on leasing those vehicles at this point in time. Our main goal was to get to a place where we're purchasing more and we're purchasing it with cash. But that's something or other that we can reach out and begin to look at to be able to see if we can do capital leases for those. Thank you. I know supply is obviously an issue. Um, it's affected my own car purchasing. Um, how many vehicles? In the class two and three, does RPD have? And of these 97, like how many are like you have to have this vehicle replaced in the next six months? If you know, thank you. I, I don't have that number off the top of my head. I can tell you that I, I believe, uh, and I have some better numbers for the presentation on Monday, but th there is a large number of uh, police but patrol vehicles that are well over uh, five years old. About the uh, rapid and the money and stuff. Okay, who do we have um, virtually? That was this afternoon, it's a Madam President. It's, this is Calvin Chambers. I am the fleet manager. Currently, they have about 400 vehicles that meets that class two and three. The ones that need to be replaced is about 97 vehicles that's past its useful life. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Any other questions or comments at this point? I think that's it for me. Thank A you. Very helpful presentation. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank you uh, for the presentation as well.
um, I um, look forward to as we move through this and as was mentioned by one of my colleagues, how the pilot will inform our future uh, purchasing and staging and and or modification of purchasing schedule for our vehicles. Uh, And certainly, Mr. Stidell, being mindful of uh, what seems to be better practice than we have been utilizing in terms of uh, cash purchasing a fleet. So we'll be vigilant in that regard as well. And and Madam President, I I would be remiss if I did not say our colleagues at the fire department did a whole lot of work on this to make sure their their fleet is the one that we we they're behind the curve. We need to get them up to the curve. And our friends at fleet have or at the fire department have done yeoman's work over the last year to get us to the vehicles that you see in this year's CIP. They they are the critical vehicles they need right now. Thank you, Madam Chair. Just one last comment. I just want Council to say, Woman Lambert. I just want to say to fleet management, my colleagues and I, we took a tour. We really enjoyed ourselves. We were very impressed. And, um, you know, we had said that a lot of the other agencies need to take a page out of you all's playbook. Um, So just keep up the good work. And we really appreciate all that you all are doing. And um, just, you know, we don't give enough kudos, but you guys are very impressive. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ms. Lambert, for sharing uh, that experience. Again, thank you, Mr. Hall, uh, Mr. Stidell, Mr. May, for uh, the presentation. That members conclude will conclude our presentation, but I want to um, accord Mr. I'm sorry, Mr. Pastor Councilman Jones the opportunity to speak to the little items that are on our desk. Yes, ma'am, Madam President. Uh, even a continent away, uh, y'all were still on my mind. So while we were in uh, Lusaka, Zambia, uh, for a mission trip, um, I just wanted to bring something back that uh, everyone could kind of just have in touch, my, my eight colleagues. And so uh, we haggled uh, with <laughs> the vendors, but uh, it was a great time. We had an opportunity to my church, Village Faith, we collected over uh, 400 jackets that we shipped out and handed out uh, in Chubombo, which is in the central province, two hours outside of Lusaka. And we bought uh, we bought in country uh, about a thousand dollars worth of food, uh, which we purchased what's called milli meal, which is cornmeal uh, that's used to make uh, in uh, uh, in Shima. Uh, and porridge and different things of that nature. And so it was just a great time. And then uh, I preached for about seven days straight uh, and, and really had uh, a very enjoyable time. But it, it was interesting to see just how many things we do uh, as African-Americans here. Uh, the Middle Passage really couldn't disrupt it. Where often we think it has, uh, when I look at how our cousins act, uh, care themselves, talk, uh, it was uh, it was enjoyable. It was it was interesting. I share with the pastor. I haven't heard a gunshot uh, the entire time over there, and uh, uh, unfortunately, I'm back home hearing gunshots again. So it's not something that uh, we do inherently. It's not something we're not violent by nature or anything of that nature. Um, and it's not even poverty uh, because you had so many individuals living uh, in poverty. That's, that's not the driving factor. Uh, of gun violence or violence, even road rage. 
And so we've got a lot of work to do in, in America and African American communities to really look at, uh, how we act, how we treat, how we relate to one another, um, uh, because that's not how our cousins act. They're not, they're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but the one thing they will do is, 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 is respect human life, uh, and follow rules, follow laws. And, uh, um, it's just, just interesting order of things over there. So. Councilman Jones, thank you for sharing those insights. And certainly as we look to address many of the challenges you mentioned, um, look to see how some of what you observed can be incorporated as components of our work moving forward. Indeed, indeed. The other thing I know, I will never buy African art outside of Africa ever again. And so I'm buying it in country. (laughs) So. Again, thank you for thinking of us. Uh, And uh, again, I want to thank uh, Mr. Bonk and his team, and certainly Mr. Hall and Mr. Stidell, Mr. May, Mr. Vincent, and your team for the presentations uh, today. Um, they are very helpful and very informative, and we certainly will be vigilant as we move forward through the budget deliberations in terms of the items that you've raised uh, uh, for us to be particularly attentive to. I believe we have just uh, one update uh, our interim. Just a quick update. Good evening, uh, members of council. Uh, You will receive an email which will contain several documents. One is the CIP um, review, which was uh, prepared by Sampson Anderson, and you will receive an updated schedule. I think you already have the one that came out this week. But added to the schedule will be a presentation on Richmond Ambulance Authority, as well as um, the Department of Emergency Communications. Um, And so we were waiting for uh, information from schools to see what would happen, but that's going to be too late. It's not going to come until after April 11th. So you will receive that on Monday, the document that I talked about to update the schedule, as well as the request for non-departmental funding. And um, one last, it will come um, today. I'm not sure what that conversation was out of my side view, but the other thing is you have upcoming budget amendments for April 5th. And there will be a um, spreadsheet document that contains a lot of what you uh, submitted as well as what items were funded. And so we thank um, Sabrina and the budget team and finance for providing information to us as well as Mr. Carcidi in preparing those documents. So you will receive that email with all of that. That's it. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Davis. With that, members, thank you for your attendance and participation. This budget work session now stands adjourned.